I'm with Rebecca Charles and Scott Torero. He's back. Um, we've talked a couple of times before in the past where he lost his daughter, Grace, to the medical system, the whole COVID protocol. And we've been learning a lot since the last time we spoke. And he, he also has his own podcast and a website for Grace uh, where you can learn a lot about this whole situation and what happened to her. Uh, but for the first time, I'm meeting Rebecca Charles, and she also lost her daughter, uh, Danielle, uh, about a year ago uh, in 2021. And she similarly died with the COVID protocols. So I'm going to introduce you guys to Rebecca and Scott and um, be able to talk about what happened. And then hopefully we'll see some commonality, what's been going on, and just be able to gather everyone together. And this is sort of an informative podcast to be able to for anyone who's lost their loved ones to similar protocols and things that have been happening since covid began um so you know you can always contact me at my website at scott's website to be able to learn more about it and really just to kind of gather together and share each other's stories so that you know if and when time comes to do anything you all will have connection with each other to be able to do that so I'm going to introduce you to Rebecca Charles. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Selma. Thank you for taking the opportunity to interview me. Well, thank you for coming on. I know it's very difficult for you to talk about what happened to you and Danielle. So uh, share about your story, uh, what, you know, what transpired before and after uh, that time frame. Uh, Danielle, was, um, she lost oxygen during delivery due to delayed birth and um, special needs. And um, I fought all my life to make sure she had the best life possible. Um, hyperbaric chamber, oxygen therapy, natural vitamins, all the doctors. So she was really healthy. Danielle never went to the doctor because she was sick. She only went to the doctor for a wellness checkup. And we have intensive blood tests we do with all the special doctors in New York City. Um, so my daughter, if she got a call, it was five days. Ah, five days and she's better. So she was very happy that she got to go back to camp. She has her, her workers who work with her. And um, it was August 17th, I believe, that um, one of her workers took her out. Danielle sees a chiropractor every week. She gets acupuncture every week for many years by her doctor. Um, she's very friendly, a happy child, loving not a bad bone in her body, I would say. She's a joy. Um, always laughing. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, I know it's hard on you. And um, you she's, she, she was with a co-worker. Was she working? Yeah. Uh, Danielle, I started Danielle with psychologists to start training her at 18. So she went fall into the crack. So Danielle started volunteering at Sunrise Assisted Living. Um, in the kitchen and she loved that because she got to talk to all the elderly people there and they all love her in the community and then she worked at Kids by the Bunch volunteering it wasn't a paid job so these workers were taking her to her job site staying with her making sure you know everything runs smoothly and she loved it she loved the independence when she got out of the house and she had her own space with her own so she was a very productive adult i think she was yeah she's 28 when she died 28 28 younger mentally like you know 10 like a 12 to 15 year old because you know she's <laughs> happy too happy but um 
very productive life. Yep. She loved to work. Yep. Well, that's, you know, that's one of the things that I noticed about you and Scott's story is that, you know, you're very loving parents that had special needs children and they had a full productive life. You know, and we're going to talk about Grace in a minute, but, uh, you know, just the fact that Danielle was working and she was productive and happy doing what she was loving to do that, you know, like she still had a life to live and it just got cut short. Yeah. So what happened um, with the COVID situation? Did, was she, now you say that she had COVID. Did she, no, I'm in like in doubt that actually COVID actually exists, but your stories are telling me that, you know, there's something that's happened to them. So did she get uh, flu-like symptoms? I know that uh, in your story that she had also had a pneumonia, right? But that's what the doctor said. So. Yeah. The co-worker worked with her Monday, Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday, she took her to uh, do her shopping, um, then the chiropractor. Then at the acupuncturist's office, the co-worker asked the receptionist to take her temperature, and she had a fever. Mm -hmm. uh, she didn't notify me until she got home. So at the acupuncturist, it's like a 45-minute treatment. So yeah. she was in the room with her for 45 minutes and then drive her back home, which is another 45 minutes, an hour. So if she was exposed to COVID before, you know, it takes three days or COVID or the cold or the flu. Um, obviously, Danielle's was in a small confined space with her. And Danielle loves that coworker a lot and always kisses her, you know, kisses her. So when she came home with Danielle, she said, um, Rebecca, I'm not feeling well. I have a fever. Um, I'm, I'm going to leave to go home. I said, yes. I said, Danielle, Gina has to go. Um, so she was hugging Gina and kissing Gina. You know, I said, she she's not feeling well. Gina, you go ahead, go home. Um, so Wednesday morning, she notified me. She got a COVID test and it's COVID positive. It didn't worry me because 2020, you know, we lived our life. You know, we, we took precautions. Danielle, neither one of us got sick or anything like that. And um, Thursday, Daniel started with a cough. So I didn't really, you know, I didn't really think much of it because, you know, she, we all went through, none of us got sick. Um, by the weekend, she got a fever and um, we started her on, on a Z-Pack, um, all the colloidal silver, all the um, young living's oil, teeth oil, um, <clears throat> everything we usually do when she get a cold. And I started her on ivermectin, one dose ivermectin, because at that time, I didn't know, like, how many times you're supposed to give it. Um, so what I noticed was that the fever would go up to, like, one or two, one or three. But Daniel was eating, talking, laughing, just, you know, tired, you know, tired. She would lay down and watch t television. Um, Thursday night, <clears throat> I noticed that her breathing was, you know, She's still talking. I noticed her stomach was moving different. So I ran and I got the pulse ox and I checked her pulse ox. It was in the eighties, high eighties. And my friend who's a pharmacist said to me, um, use a nebulizer. So I started on the nebulizer. It went up to 94. Um, next morning I checked her pulse ox. She ate, I put her out. We sat in the sun a little bit and she ate and the pulse ox was high 80s and 87, I believe. And I, my daughter is never sick. You know, my daughter is never sick. So this scared me. Um, I, 
my husband tried to call for oxygen and they said we need a script it would take 24 hours this is friday morning i'm like where am i going to get a script so quickly and i called my neighborhood doctor who is down the street they all know danielle and they love danielle um and he said take her into the hospital i'll call her in so i thought we were going to get special privileges because he actually had worked at that hospital when he was younger and he knows everyone um so before you continue, so it, it was because of her pulse that was getting too low was the reason that you decided oxygen. this is more alarming? The oxygen, yeah, I panicked. But how would you know that she had enough oxygen without doing tests? I, I didn't know. I didn't it know. Was the, it was the finger monitor, right? Yeah, the finger monitor, yeah. That oh. everybody say, yeah, the pulse ox. Okay, so... Okay, so continue with when she got to the hospital. So when we got to the hospital, um, well, she didn't want to go. First of all, that's what hurts me most. Daniel didn't want to go. She fought with me. No, I don't want to go. No, no, no. I don't want to go. So I said, Daniel, we have to go. So I'm trusting the doctor that we have to go at least, at least to see what's going on. I really went to see what's going on. You know, give me an idea what's going on. Well, the instincts were correct. I mean, if you are sick and you feel like it's degrading, then you got to go to the hospital where that's what the system is designed to do. So there's nothing harm, you know, like you didn't do anything wrong. It was just strictly you're following your motherly instinct to be able to take care of her. Yeah. So as soon as we reached, you know, the get up with everything that told my husband he can come in, you know, he was going to come in and told him he can come in. So Daniel and I was there and they put oxygen on, they put a mask on her. <laughs> they put a mask yeah, on her. It's crazy. They put, yeah. They put oxygen on her and um, they did a COVID test and they said, oh, she has COVID. And then they did an x-ray and they said she has double pneumonia. And oh my God. I mean, that just made me so scared. I'm like, <gasps> Double pneumonia. I mean, that's all I had to hear. And Do you um, think she had pneumonia. I, you know what? The symptoms I'm hearing and the stories I'm hearing, it seems like everybody was classified with pneumonia or double pneumonia because oh. that was talking and she was breathing. Right. It wasn't like it was shortness of breath. She had no shortness of breath, no gasping for air, nothing like that. But now I'm hearing everybody got the same diagnosis, which is, uh, well, that. That's interesting to know that because that means they're just making up diagnosis. Okay, so go ahead. So the doctor told me, Dr. Andrews in Glencove, the hospital said to me, do you pray? Oh my God, that got me scared even more. Like I wasn't afraid of COVID. I was not afraid of it because, you know, we were a little bit knowledgeable that, you know, you take everything and you get better. But double pneumonia, I never heard of that. I never had it. No one had it. So I had no experience with that. Um, so they say they have to admit her. So I say, can you give her the monoclonal antibodies? And the doctor said, oh, no, she has fluid in the lungs and it's over five days that she have COVID. So mm -hmm. that's the answer. No monoclonal antibodies. Did you ever get to look at her x-rays to kind of see if she did have fluids? No. No, they just told me that she had double pneumonia. Well, even at this point, let's just assume that they're telling the truth, that she had pneumonia or pneumonia and then fluid. I mean, so you would still have to follow their protocols at this point. There's nothing too nefarious going on um, at this you know, stage of it. So what happened next? Well, I felt safe because my doctor down the street 
knows the hospital and knows the doctors. So I didn't feel scared. You know, I wasn't feeling like I felt she was in good hands. And um, they admitted us and they told me to sign the paperwork for admittance and they will treat her for pneumonia. So now I'm thinking they're going to treat her for pneumonia, not COVID, because pneumonia is a, diff is a common thing that's been wrong for years. And they never told me it was an emergency use drug that we're going to use. They never told me the name of the drug. They just told me that how to sign the document for her to be admitted and treated. Yeah, which all should be changed. Every person should know exactly what the treatment is, what drugs they're using, and what they're going to do. It's it's like we were all trained to just follow the doctors blindly. Right. And that's how they're getting all of us now. <laughs> but um, so now that you signed her life away to them in their hands, what happened? Uh, a couple hours later, before we went upstairs, they brought her pasta and chicken and I fed her and she ate. She was eating, talking, you know, everything. Um, and then we went upstairs to put us in a, a room by ourselves. Um, the nurse came in and said, well, you could take your mask off in the room. It has a hyper, you know, filtration system. And and um, she gave Danielle some meds again without telling me. Danielle has an IV in her arm. Uh, they started remdesivir. I found out that very moment. Yeah, it was terrible. Hospital, yeah, they started on remdesivir. That's With what that's what's going to do it. That's the you know that effect of that drug is not only does it damage your liver, but that actually puts fluids in the lungs. Mm -hmm. yeah. So even if they didn't have pneumonia after that drug, they certainly would have. So. Mm -hmm. So that's terrible. And would you have been able to say no, even if you knew about that drug? Oh, yes, I would definitely say no. I would definitely, because usually before I give Daniel any drugs, I would call my friend, our family friend who's a pharmacist and ask him, is this drug good? Is this drug bad? But no one gave me any knowledge. I think they were treating her for pneumonia, not COVID. That's too bad. Uh, and when you read that, um, when you signed to get her admitted, was there any warnings that, you know, you were actually having them treat everything with whatever they wanted? No, no, they never, no informed consent, nothing, no knowledge, anything, just signed to treat. Okay. So what happened next after that? Um, that night, you know, she told me, mommy, I'm scared, mommy, I'm scared. And usually my daughter, she sleeps through the night, you know, they could have a party in her house and Daniel will sleep. She's a very good sleeper. That night, she didn't really sleep very well. That was the first night. And I laid in bed with her a little bit. I sneaked into her bed just to comfort her. And she fell asleep. And um, the next morning was Saturday. They came in very early and they went to take bloods again from her. And I, I was singing her favorite song, You're My Sunshine, because that's her, one of her favorite songs, so that they could take the blood from her. And uh, again, we le were left in the room all alone again to bring her lunch. And, you know, they said she had to lay in bed. There was no breathing exercises. There was nothing like the normal treatment for pneumonia. She was never given that. She was told she had to lay in bed and they did everything in bed. So she was not allowed to sit up. She was not allowed to walk around. She was not allowed to use any mechanical devices that would help her to help strengthen her lungs. Or right there and then that is already wrong because when you start the part of that, I mean, when you have pneumonia, you would have signs of trouble breathing because, you know, the lungs have to inflate with all that fluid. So, like, part of that, they always want to make you move around 
to get the blood circulating and all of that stuff to get you healthier. It's never to be like strictly locked down in bed and never move. So right there and then like that would be alarming, you know, to be able to see that. I, I didn't know. I did. I did not know. I did, did really. I wish if I knew all that, that I know now. So Sunday morning, the doctor came in again. Uh, it's a foreign doctor. She's a foreign doctor. I have no idea who she is. And I said, is there any way I could get another? I said, please, do you have to take blood from her every morning? This is really hard on her. And she said, okay, I'll put a note that they don't have to come in and take blood every morning. So um, they should have already known that. So yeah, it's, it's hard on her. So Sunday, I said, I need to see another doctor because we only had a wrong, one doctor every morning coming in. Nobody comes in at night and it's just Daniel and I and my husband, he would bring food. He would send up food. He would send up stuff for both of us. And they would allow me to get food, clothing, anything from home. They would allow me to get it in the room. Um, Monday morning, I asked again for the doctor and they sent in Dr. Ramanu around two o'clock in the afternoon. He is the pulmonologist. And um, he came in there with a solemn face and he told me to sit down and um, said to me, uh, we're going to bring her in the ICU. She'll get better care there because there's lots of windows and it's, this is room just have a small window and you'll be able to get taken care of more. We could yeah. have observation. That is what he said to me. I never forget it. Not because she has pneumonia, not because she's getting worse, but for observation. Which meant they wanted to upgrade their insurance payout. If they're so concerned about the windows and not about her health, immediately that's already another red flag. So she was moved to the ICU then or the yeah, observation? We, we both going to the ICU. They had us all clothed and covered up and Danielle loves her pajamas. You know, she likes to wear her pajamas. That's what makes her happy. As soon as we reached in the ICU, they took her pajamas off and they gave her bedpan and she started to cry because Danielle's independent. She does not want to use a bedpan. And they told her now she has to use a bedpan and she has to take off her pajamas. And now she's hooked up to all these different IV tubes and, and uh, you know, heart monitors and all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, this is really scary. This is really real that my daughter is really sick. Mm -hmm. So... They serve lamb chops. That was Monday. And Daniel ate all her lamb chops and even my lamb chops. Um, and that night she started to have problem breathing because the stats would go down and then the nurses would come in and um, she didn't want the cannula in her nose. I don't know if it was sort of change the cannula to another cannula. And I don't know if they were put in high flow, but it was, it was like, it wasn't comfortable for her. So she kept removing the, the cannula from her nose. Um, that was Tuesday. Now, at that point, I started to get really sick. I started to get fever, chills. Um, and my husband kept sending up all my medicine for me. And I actually had hydroxychloroquine in the room. And I didn't know that I could have given it to her because I, I didn't know, you know, that that would have helped her. And um, I was taking everything. And I even asked the doctor on Tuesday morning. I said, could you give me something? to help me <laughs> to get better, you know? And he said, well, you're not a patient, you know? So they all knew that I was getting sick. So Tuesday night, she was up. She was up all night. Um, and finally, like, and I was shaking. I had the fever, the chills, and, and I'm just eight minutes away from Northwell Health Hospital. 
So are they still letting you in the room? While yeah, I was, I was locked in the room. I couldn't come out. Yeah, I was locked in the room. So I asked a nurse, it's five days now we're in a hospital. I said, could I just go home and shower while she's sleeping and come back? I'm eight minutes away. That's I live so close to the hospital. He said, yes, 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 you could go. So while six in the morning, I left, called my husband. I said, just come take me. I'm going to shower and go back in. And um, eight o'clock or eight thirty in the morning, I got a phone call that I cannot come back to the hospital. I will be removed if I don't have a negative COVID test. And they all knew I was sick in there. And um, so they were waiting for you to voluntarily leave, it seems like. Yeah. So what was the condition of Danielle before you left, just before you left? Um, she was sleeping, um, but that night she did not eat her chicken fingers. I think it was too hard. Um, she didn't eat like she usually eats. She had some fruit. I gave her some grapes, some jello. She had that. She was drinking the juice that I gave her. I was literally doing everything for her. The nurses wasn't doing anything. They were hardly coming in, excepting for the respiratory nurse to check or to, you know, but I was taking care of her. Well, it sounds weird since it's in the ICU. They should all be very attuned to every little thing. So if you were not allowed to come back, is that the time frame when all this happened? Um, yeah, I think she was going down because she couldn't sleep the last few nights. So obviously the fluids probably was filling up due to the remdesivir. And um, I asked, I sent over her iPad so that she could get her iPad to talk to me and for me to see her. And they said, no, she yeah, can't okay. get it. I sent, over, yeah, I sent over prayer clothes. And they said nothing could come into the room. And I said, but I was there and my husband was sending food and he was bringing my clothes and he was sending, you all were letting everything upstairs. Why you all don't let her iPad? So they said, no, we cannot. We're not allowed to bring anything from outside. No, they didn't do that because they didn't want her to communicate with you. If it was just like a game module thing, they would have let it. But because the iPad where you could see her, communicate with her, they didn't want that. That was a reason to not allow you in, but also no communications whatsoever. Yeah. So I said, where is the hospital iPad? The hospital iPad wasn't working. Conveniently not working. It wasn't working. That's what they said. It's not working. Um, so I'm freaking out at home, trying to get everything to her on, and no communication. They didn't let her talk to me on the phone. They didn't let me see her, speak to her. I kept calling the doctor. Uh, and now I'm afraid because now I think if I push too much, they would treat her bad. So I'm trying to be really nice with everybody. They're really nice. So just really trying. I sent over balloons for her and they said no balloons. Nothing could go up in the ICU. So she had nothing to comfort her. And one of the nurses I called and the nurses said that, well, we spoke to Danielle and we told her if she don't keep her, her IV in, we're going to restrain her. And we had to restrain her. So my daughter was tied to the bed. Aww. Not understanding what's going on because she was never, she was never alone. Danielle was never alone. She always had somebody and her biggest fear is to be alone. And in that hospital, she kept telling me, mommy, I'm scared. Mommy, I'm scared. Mommy, I'm scared. We had real instincts that, some, that she was in danger. Yeah. So she was taking out the IV herself. Uh, when she, I believe when she woke up and saw I wasn't there, she pulled everything off and she tried to yeah. get off the bed. So she, uh, I think she knew that she was she in danger. 
she was fighting. So there is, they told me they restrained her and a special needs should have an aide in the room with her. And the nurse said to me, Stephanie said to me, she need to have someone with her, but I don't know why the doctor did not allow anyone with her. They didn't allow anybody in the room. Because so, I think they already decided, you know, that she was already marked for death. As soon as they moved her into the ICU and started collecting the insurance, they had to do their full course, which has been in all of your stories. So I'm sorry you had to go through all that, you know, and it's so how, I mean, how many more days was she isolated? Um, well, from the Monday she went into the ICU, Tuesday, he started telling me that she needed to go on the vent ventilator. Yeah, and I said, no, no, she's not going on the ventilator. No, she's not going on the ventilator. Wednesday, you know, we need to put on the ventilator. Thursday, now I'm out of the hospital. You know, they're calling the neighbor doctor, they're calling my neighbor, the doctor, and he's telling us that they're saying that Daniel is getting worse. She needs to go on the ventilator. And um, I said, no, she, I don't want to hear it. She's not going on the ventilator. And my, um, and my ex-husband, he arrived Saturday morning, like around four in the morning from Florida. He flew, he drove up, and um, she was talking to him. And he's like, Becky, don't let them put her on the ventilator. And um, the doctor keep on telling me she need to go on the ventilator. And he was he was upset. Of course, he was upset because, you know, to see Daniel's condition. Um, I asked the doctor, I said, if this was your child, would you put her on the ventilator? Would it save her life? Because they got me so scared. They made me feel like the ventilator was the only hope to get her out of the hospital. And Dr. Ramanu said to me, yes, if it was my child, I would put her on the ventilator. No, he wouldn't. He's just a scumbag. Sorry. No, any real doctor would not because they know the statistics that 80 to 90 percent people that go on these ventilators die. So I don't think anyone who actually loves people would want to harm anyone else or their children. So it's unfortunate that, you know, you had to trust this guy. Um, so I'm taking that she did go on the ventilator. So Saturday morning, I did it because my husband was there and, I, and my ex-husband was there. And I thought it was safe for them to do it while somebody was with her. So I agreed. After five days of nagging about the ventilator, I agreed. I agreed. If you hadn't agreed, would they have listened to it or would they have just done it anyway? I think once they got me out, they had they did whatever they want because they gave Daniel 10 rungs of remdesivir. Uh, Even when she was on the ventilator, they give her the remdesivir. She yeah. was so healthy. Yeah. And um, uh, that was Saturday morning. Monday morning, I will, I've been researching all weekend what to do, people with COVID, what happened when they're on the ventilator. And I found out that ivermectin would... Um, help you to get off the ventilator there was a woman upstate new york 90s in her 90s when the one the court case she was able to get ivermectin i think in 48 hours she was off the ventilator wow. so i contacted ralph laringo the attorney and i sent all the documents made the payment everything and a week before friday which is she was on the ventilator now from saturday to friday Friday, I got a court order signed by the judge 
immediately dispense, immediately dispense ivermectin to Danielle, a court order. And I had my friend who is a pharmacist bring the ivermectin to the hospital. And the doctor's wife, my neighbor doctor's wife, she delivered it to the administrator, the, the court order, to give Danielle the ivermectin. I called that night. It's in legal department that didn't do it. I said, you are going against a court order. Why my child don't have the ivermectin? Well, it's in the legal department. Saturday morning, I called. Did Daniel get the ivermectin? And the nurse said, it doesn't work. And, and one of our friends who works at the hospital, her husband said he was asking about Danielle. And they said, would you believe that that parent want to give her horse medicine? So it was, they had no intentions of giving it to her. Yeah, because they could have gotten it from their own pharmacy. Even if they weren't going to take your drugs, they easily had access to just get it themselves. Yeah. But well, they, they already made up their mind. They weren't going to do it, and they defied the court order, basically, right? They defied it, but then they said they couldn't give my ivermectin. They had to give their ivermectin. Which is completely different. Is it in the pill form that they wanted? I to have no. I think they were crushing it, but I don't know if they even give it to her. Because yeah, there's, unfortunately, the ivermectin, the real one, uh, I think the horse paste is better if they haven't tainted it by yet. But the drug companies were also making ivermectin, which, you know, the same companies that are doing the shots and all of these protocols. So who knows if it's actually, you know, the real thing or not. Um but that's another topic. So it, did, did they even give the ones that they were allowed to give? I don't know because the nurse was very adamant that it doesn't work. And that was the nurse who was taking care of her. She was not very that. nice. She was not very nice. Um, so the Monday, so that's Saturday, supposedly they gave it to her, but the nurse said it doesn't work. Sunday, Monday, I was cleared to go back to the hospital. And I went back in with my paperwork showing I don't have COVID. And um, I was when I reached there and I went right into her room, she was swollen and she was laying on her face. Her chin, when they finally turned her over, her chin was bruised and her forehead was bruised. I don't know if because she fell off or how they had her, but I said, why is she swollen? And they said, oh, it's a COVID. Everything is a COVID. It's a COVID. So the doctor called me and he said to me, I have nightmares about your daughter. And I, I did not know how to address that. Like, how do you say, what do you mean you have nightmares? I just, I was shocked that a doctor would tell you. you know, he was preparing you for what was going to happen. That's, yeah. what, that's what was happening. Yeah. So in his mind, he knew exactly yeah. the result was. He knew, he knew what he was yeah. doing. And then. I would tell him, you know, thank you for taking care of my daughter. And he tell me, don't thank him as yet. It was just these horrible things that he would say. Don't thank him as yet. What do you mean don't thank you as yet? So I couldn't answer him back because I'm afraid they're going to kick me out. Um, so he called me to the medical station, the doctor's station, and tell me, um, we need to stop the ivermectin. This is like less than three days uh, because it's affecting her liver. Since they started the ivermectin, it doesn't affect your liver unless yes. it's toxin to you know what they got, but it's the uh, other medicine, the remdesivir, that's doing that. 
Well, now I knew she was getting remdesivir because I had called the hospital. My friend in England is a nurse and she said, Rebecca, what are they giving her? And I found out about remdesivir and I asked and yes, she got 10 rounds of remdesivir. And I said, don't you give her any more remdesivir, no more shots of anything. So he called me and told me that look at her liver stats. Since we've been giving her remdesivir, um, ivermectin, her liver enzyme went up. And now it's really affecting her and we need to stop the ivermectin. And yeah, I, said nice. to him, I said to him and all the nurses were there. I said, the remdesivir that does that. Don't you know the remdesivir does that? But what do, what, what could I do? You know, I had to agree to stop the ivermectin again. So they were happy. Oh, yes. They just put you in a very vulnerable state. And to react out of fear where you're basically complying to every decision, medical decision that they wanted to do. I think, you know, if you were a little bit stronger and said no, I don't know if they would have just taken over and kicked you out completely. They would have kicked me out. Yeah. Or, you know, like tried. So a lot of stuff is happening. But in, in your story, at least, it seems like you're giving in to every pressure that they're telling you. Did you take any pictures of... I have pictures of that here, which I can't look at. I yeah, can't look at yeah. One day I came into the room and when I moved her blanket, she was soaked with feces. You know, it leaked out all in her. All She was covered and it just covered up. And I was this like, crazy. That's crazy. That That's the whole point of being in that observation room is so they can monitor every aspect of it and do all the work that they're supposed they shouldn't there's not a patient in the world they should have feces all over them you know unless it just happened like that second twice it happened twice while when i came twice two times so either they were cleaning up just before i came or because i was there from 12 to 6 or they just neglected her that first week and left her there um and then they would put her on a stomach. Now I know that, you know, putting somebody on a stomach with a ventilator is not good for them. You don't do that when they have... No, well, I'm sure the entire protocol was all wrong. So we don't even have to... We could just assume that. But what happens like the moments before she died? Um, well, uh, I would ask what's, what's, what's going on. So to say she need a feeding tube. So they need to make money off of the feeding tube. Yeah, um, I actually got Immucal, uh, a supplement to see if they could feed it to her. And I begged the doctor, I said, could you please just give her low dose at Ivermectin? Just give her low dose. So it was two weeks before she died. They said, we need to take put the trach into her. And um, I said, why are you going to cut her? Please don't cut her. He said, well, you want her to wake up. So in order to wake her up, we need to put the trach in her and to lessen all the drugs. So now she, she's... When I came into ICU, she was on Presidex, Percocet. Um, they want to put you to sleep. Drugs. Um, fentanyl. Wow. Um, she was on eight different machines, sometimes 10 different machines of drugs. I have pictures of that too. That is crazy. Yeah. Even a healthy person could not tolerate all of that. Every dish is that good. That's insane. Propofol. Propofol was the other one too. So, they convinced me to do the surgery for the trach. That was two weeks before she died. Um, first, I did the, the, the puncture, the feeding tube. Um, Daniel never woke up. Daniel never woke up. 
they took her off the press deck, so they said. And um, two days later, they said, it's not like we have to put her back on. She's fighting or she's agitated. Or But Daniel never opened her eyes, except in once when they were pulling her to change her in the bed. Her eyes rolled back, but she never looked or, or squeezed my hand or... Well, it's not possible with all those drugs. She's out. Yeah. So what actually caused her death to, at that moment? Um, three days before, there were times when her temperature was so low, she was always having fevers and no fevers, fevers. And um, I kept asking for give me some heating pads for her hand. So they would give me uh, warm things for her hand and warm for her feet. But I didn't know my daughter was dying. Um she died already? Um, well, I believe that when her hands started getting cold and her feet started getting cold, they knew. Mm -hmm. They knew. Um, because uh, the Saturday before she died, they, her oxygen went down to like 60s. And then the doctor says, um, it's going to take a lot to bring her into therapy. It's going to take a lot for her to. I said, no. I said, no. G David took down Goliath. I said, my daughter's going to come out of this and it doesn't matter. And then the doctor said to me, um, well, her kidneys is working for now. Well, what, what statement is that? The kidneys, how do well, you ask a doctor to say that? The kidneys working for now. So, well, don't you supposed to do something if you see the kidneys failing you? So three days before she died, the urine got, became brown, like really brown. It was no longer clear urine, and she was swelling. She was getting really big. and um, That means her kidneys were failing at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, I forgot one thing. When I first came back to the hospital, they told me the right side of her heart is not working. I'm like, no, 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 my daughter's heart is strong. She doesn't have any problems. So it, as they tell me stuff, I was just throwing it out my head because I just well, wanted to I'm sorry to ask you a hard question, but where was your husband in all this? Oh, he was coming in and praying with her and oh my ex-husband oh my husband well, whoever was dad who was with her he would come in every day and we would pray and they would let one of us at a time we so did he ever speak up to saying look you know she's been getting worse and worse under your care that did any of you ever think like maybe we just gotta take her out yeah well you know we did speak up and they keep on saying it's covid this is what covid oh, does yeah, this is what we have to do. This is COVID. There's nothing we could do. Um, once he said to me, do you want to move her? And and now I realized when he offered to transfer her, that's when she was already far gone. Yeah. He wanted it off his hands. He wanted that off his hands. Um, well, yeah, they were vultures waiting for, I mean, when you have like all these organ failures, one after the other, it's already, a, it's a huge flag that's saying that all the treatment that they're doing is uh, intentionally meant to kill her because they would have different doctors for because you know each doctor actually specializes in their own little area of even organs and stuff so like let's say a liver fails and you have heart problems you would have a cardiologist there and you know someone that knows about so when you have like the liver the kidneys the heart and all these other issues including infectious disease that they're talking about you would have different people come in. So I'm sorry to hear all that, um, but I'm going to uh, talk to Scott. And hi, David. 
Uh, and this is the first time to say hello to you. Um, so I want to hear your story as well. Um, so what do you think about all this, Scott, that, you know, like you having heard like the similarities of what you went through too? Rebecca's situation is, um, it, it's the, you know, so I've, I have probably studied a hundred of these cases now and her situation is really the typical situation. These are, these these scenarios are substantially worse than Grace's death because they set this up, you know, for uh, roughly a five-week stint so they can max out the dollars. You know, the dollars are clearly motivating this. I would guess if I took a look at the, the bill that the hospital uh, sent Medicaid along with the uh, bonus payments that the situation with Danielle was in the million-dollar range, do you know, Rebecca, how much? Um, she had Cigna PPO and she had Medicaid. I have some of the bills. Um, I just couldn't look at it. I just couldn't look at it. Yeah, I would suspect it's in the million-dollar range. I mean, they did every single thing wrong. I mean, Seema, you picked it apart well. I mean, they they did every single thing wrong. The idea of of taking Rebecca out, you know, when they directly lied to her saying, you can come yeah. back after the shower. Um, you know, we had a similar pattern, you know, I was taken out by an armed guard, but then, you know, our attorney negotiated with the hospital attorney and thankfully my daughter, Jessica got back in, but Jessica went home to take a shower too. You know, the last Grace's last day. And by the time she got back, she's only gone an hour. They let her back, but when Jessica got back, they had strapped Grace down to the bed, made her go to the bathroom in the bed, and then bump. You know, they set in motion to take her out that day. The difference in the main difference in the stories is that we did say no to the ventilator. We said no five different times. Grace was never on remdesivir. Uh, we weren't going to allow remdesivir. So then they kept pushing ventilator, ventilator, ventilator. When we said no the fifth time, they had to figure out a different way to take Grace out. And so you know, they they were setting her up for the ventilator by being on the sedation med for four and a half days. That's against the package insert, but Grace was still uh, surprisingly doing well in spite of being sedated for four days. Uh, her oxygen level the night before her death was at 98, 99% the entire night. And the doctor even commented the morning of her death. She, he said, Grace had such a good day yesterday, we should work on nutrition. So then they they convinced us of the feeding tube. You know, they've got to get there any possible way to get the money. The other thing that's analogous um is this whole ICU thing in you know so they they do make more money once the room is classified as ICU the uh the in Grace's case what put her as ICU classified was what I've learned is as soon as a patient is sedated their room is classified as ICU so in Grace's case the the care never changed nor did she change rooms but the amount of the money the hospital received changed uh so there's so grace was also in icu and a feeding tube that they the feeding tube came the last day so she had a central line in they could have fed her tpn food but the doctor convinced us to do a feeding tube uh, because he said <laughs> there's risks with tpn food and 
and he set us up for for that decision you know they lie so what's yeah. going on is they have they have a hospitalist that is the person that's talking with the family and this person is picked um as for their for their salesmanship skills so i mean they're they're selling you the whole time they're trying yeah, to I mean, one it. person if you're making a million dollars off of one person that is alone enough to make anyone a murderer, you know, because it's like, well, they're coming in, the, the government is telling us it's COVID, these are all the protocols, and if we just, you know, go along with it, then we'll get at least that one million, which is more than what they would have made if they just treated everybody, you know, with real medic medicine and healthcare. Absolutely. But, um, and I also noticed that you said because you refused uh, the Redesivir and the the ventilator so they were able to listen to you and not do that so in rebecca's case she had to they forced her to say yes right so uh in your story scott are you really saying that you do have some control like you can say no to these drugs and the ventilator well, treatment yeah that's a that's a great question i mean why did why did they ask us for the ventilator but they didn't ask us for the Presidex? because right. the Presidex actually is what killed grace oh. uh, you know and they truthfully listed her first cause of death as acute respiratory failure and the package insert for Presidex says if you use it for more than 24 hours it causes acute respiratory failure so they literally caused her first cause of death right. uh, so why didn't they give us informed consent relative to um that situation with the precedex and you know they gave us you know quasi informed consent with the ventilator so the first request for the ventilator ventilator is more of a demand at this point i was not wise to ventilators i was under the impression because president trump had implemented ventilators under the war yeah. powers act i i bought that narrative and so i asked the doctor when he first said your daughter needs to go on a ventilator I said what's the prognosis and he told me a version of the truth he said only 80 he said only 20 percent of people walk out alive once they're on a ventilator so I started digging into it right away and realized oh my gosh it's worse than what he but said he knew that already that it was 20 percent chance to put it on yet he was demanding that she go on Correct. so he was lessening her chance to what it could have been I mean Honestly, take off all the drugs and give, you know, if they gave her uh, proper protocols, if she still would have been at 100%. But even with the protocols that she was getting, she was probably still more than 50%. But then by putting on the ventilator, you're lessening it down to 20%. And well, then that's, that's right on. And the hospitalist is there to sell it. So, I mean, the hospitalist said to me, when he had the private conversation with me after the pulmonologist wanted to do the ventilator, he said, well, isn't a 20% chance better than no chance? So this is how they frame this. I mean, they yeah. frame this as this, this COVID is going to kill your daughter and you've got to take these extraordinary measures to save her. Well, they're lying the entire time. You know, at the, well, at the time you're in the hospital, I mean, you, we've all been indoctrinated to believe the white coat, but then none of us know that there's this whole financial incentive going on. Yeah. You know, it, you know, of course, all three of us are awake to that now, but I mean, when you're there, you're not awake to it. You know, no, so I mean, like you the know, idea the purpose 
of this is to wake everybody up. Wake up. I Absolutely. Mean, that's why we're doing That's why we're on here. I mean, right. Scott has done over, you know, 500 podcasts about what's happening. And, you know, even though I've just met you guys, David and Rebecca today, but the story is similar. And it's, you know, even with uh, the stuff that I learned about remdesivir, the, the ventilator, that's all this year that I'm like, oh, my God. So all of us were in the blind. And we trusted the doctors, but the media set us up all, the government set us up all to saying, this is what's going to happen. It's bad. You're going to have to go to the hospital. They were already prepping everyone to be so scared and so submissive that they would just go in blindly and they all knew it. So at this point, you know, like the point of sharing all these stories is that all the, the, the people that are watching this video and listening you know, at some point, you're going to maybe need medical care for something. And hopefully this will wake you up that you have to research the medicines and you have to have informed consent for everything. Ask questions if you don't know it. And don't just say yes or out of fear. And actually look at your child and your loved ones and say, you know, what is when you put them in, if they're getting worse after you admitted them, then, then perhaps there's something else going on that you need to be wising up and, you know, like take active steps to save your loved ones instead of just blindly following orders. And that's where we're, you know, that's where all the problems are. I wanted to start with David. Uh, hi, David. Hey. Hi. So uh, do you guys mind if I share your uh, children's photo or do you have any objections to that? I, I don't mind. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and just share quickly. So these are the photos of uh, loved ones that died. Danielle, she's at 28 years old when she died. She looked very happy girl and, you know, very healthy. And, you know, it's too bad to see her in the state that you saw her. And this is Grace. Uh, I've seen many photos of her already. She has a very full life. She did everything and anything. Lots of fun activities. Um, Scott took good care of her and her mom. And uh, at the bottom here, uh, or Grace was 19 when she died. And Eris uh, was 13 year olds when he died. So the commonality with all your stories that the, your kids had special needs, right? Tell me about Aries. Uh, so it's been a while since I've told this story. So excuse me if I don't keep it together. But it's uh, hard. I mean, just so, listening to you guys, I can see the emotions inside of you that it's just still raw. Yeah, it's very raw. Um, well, so Aries was sick at towards the end of November. Um. He, he was sick, and then about two days later, he, he seemed to fully recover. And then towards the, probably the 2nd of December, he started getting sick again. So, you know, with Eris's condition, he has SMA, uh, spinal muscular, muscular atrophy. So, essentially, as he, he has muscle weakness, and... Um, so, you know, me me and his mom provide his respiratory treatment. So so we're very knowledgeable about how to treat uh, for respiratory issues. You know, we've been doing it for six years. You know, we do everything. The vest, nebulizer, cough assist, quad cough. You know, we're very knowledgeable in it. 
so you know we were doing our our typical treatments and um you know just getting up his mucus and on the third of december he was complaining about rib pains more than likely it was because of a lot of the coughing and the quad coughing so we, we took i took him to the emergency room and you know we were there for a long time about six hours and you know towards the end of it they, they said he had covid and once they told us he had covid they unplugged all his leads told us to go home and keep in mind this is his his main hospital children's hospital of atlanta scottish right um his doctor his doctor, Dr. Brooks, was his doctor for six years. She's the one who taught us about respiratory care. She's the one who saved him the first time because when he was six, he had pneumonia. And we took him to a, a children's hospital. And their protocol was just blast him full of oxygen, with high pressure. And they almost killed him. And we found Dr. Brooks. And she she brought him over to his hospital or to her hospital. And from there, she taught us the appropriate respiratory care. And then he ended up you know, living and, you know, we thought she was an angel or sent by God, you know, she, she really saved his life at, you know, when he was six, but anyway, so they told us to go home, didn't provide us any additional treatments, nothing. And, you know, Eris was fine. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't, his stats were fine. You know, he wasn't having trouble breathing. It was just his rib pain. So, you know, I took him home and then the next day, December 4th, uh, he woke up, he said he couldn't breathe that well. So we did treatment, you know, you know the treatment consisted of, you know, the vest, uh, albuterol, uh, Zofinex. I mean, we had all the respiratory treatments to save his life. And, so let uh, me ask you a few questions before you continue. So he already had a respiratory illness throughout his life, right? That you had a respiratory illness. It's, uh, he has muscle weakness, so... Because of that, he's unable to walk. He's unable to, to to move his arms that well. He can barely hold his head up. But because he's so weak, he does when he gets sick. It's it's very important to be uh, be on top of his treatments and never been. I mean, he's been sick plenty of times. And but I mean, the reason when you said you had to learn how to manage the respiratory care yeah. is it because when he gets weak or sick, sometimes that causes him to not being able to properly breathe? Yeah, I mean, when he gets sick, I mean, he can breathe fine when he's sick. It's just that you just have to be on top of it. You just got to just give him his treatments, you know, clear his fluids. Um, sometimes you don't even need to give treatment. You just have to do quad cough, which is essentially shaking his chest as he's coughing to bring up all that so fluid. what was different uh, the moments the reason why you had to take him to the ER, like, uh, he wanted to go to the ER or uh, the second time he he requested it, you know, and I mean, who am I to deny his his request to to take him to the hospital? Um, so that's why I took him, and you know, we took him. I, I took him to the emergency room on December fourth, and you know, his stats wasn't that bad. I mean, he was in in the high eighties. Took him to the emergency room, you know, and then they they. He was fine in the emergency room. They, they were, you know, I was, I was doing all his treatments. I, I wouldn't, I refused to let any respiratory therapist or doctor do his treatments, even in the past, because I don't trust any of them. Well, that's good. And, um, you know, he was doing fine in the, e in, in the ER. He was doing fine. They, they were giving him oxygen, 
not too much pressure. You know, we would do treatment every uh, two or three hours. So he was fine there. And then I asked the the doctor in the emergency room if we can give him ivermectin. And she said she would look into it. And then she came back and said, no, it's, you know, it's, well, she didn't say no. She said that I would have to speak with the doctor in the, uh, the ICU. So finally, uh, we got transferred to the ICU. And that's when things just went completely downhill. We went to the ICU. The very first doctor we saw, it wasn't Dr. Brooks. It wasn't his main doctor. It was one of her fellows. Uh, you know, immediately when he walked in, he wanted to pull, put a full face mask on him. Mm. And, and I was like, no, we're, we're not doing that. You know, just give him some oxygen. And we, we bought his trilogy, which is it's, it's sort of a BiPAP, but it's a, it's, a, it's a much smarter machine than a BiPAP. We bought his trilogy and I was like, let's use his machine with the Nate. Cause he had a nasal mask. I was like, let's use that. And he just refused. He said, no, we, we have to give him the full face mask. So they put the full face mask on him. And the pressure was so intense that he couldn't even open his eyes. My son, Eris, couldn't open his eyes. And I argued with a doctor. I was like, no, you can't put this much pressure on on, on the, uh, the uh, I can't remember the machine now. See it in my head. The, not a ventilator, but the oxygen mask. I can't remember the name. But... I said, you can't put this much pressure. You're going to make him worse. And he was like, no, 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 it's fine. I was like, no, we need to take this off. Can we, can we get the, can we use his machine? And I, we, me and his mom argued for, I don't know, about 20 minutes about this. And unfortunately they wouldn't listen to us. So they, they, they left the full face mask on, you know, Eris is such a sweet boy that, you know, when, we asked him, you know, hey, you know, if it's too much, let us know. We, we'll get the doctors to, 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 to lower it. And he's like, no, it's okay. It's okay. So, you know, during that time, uh, you know, the respiratory therapist would come in and do the treatment. Well, I would do the treatment. But we did have an instance where a respiratory therapist came in that first day, uh, December 4th. You know, I did, I did his treatment, you know, I got up a lot of fluids, a lot of black fluid. It was, it was unusual. I've never seen black fluid come up from his lungs, but I, I got a lot of fluid up and the nurse or the respiratory therapist checked his lungs and he said, he sounds, he sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. And then, you know, that was the, his first respiratory treatment though. But as time went on, they still put the full face mask on his face and Eventually, they did a blood gas test on him, and the same doctor who pushed for the full face mask was present, and I watched him do the test, and I asked him, I was like, what is the results of the test? He's like, it's not good, and I went off on him. I, I, I cursed, I, you, know, I, you know, I said a couple of curse words, and I just, I went off because I, I said, I told you so. I told you so. This is, I, I, I told you this would happen, and he, he put his head down and just walked right out, didn't say anything to me. And this whole time I was fighting for ivermectin too. You know, as soon as I walked into the, the ICU, I asked for ivermectin and the doctor was like, uh, that's, that's against FDA protocol. We can only give him rendesivir. I was like, no, I don't want to give him rendesivir. I want to give him ivermectin. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. It's, you know, it's not approved by the CDC. Uh, the NIH doesn't recommend it. 
So I went on NIH's website, and in fact, it does recommend ivermectin. And I showed him this, and he was like, "Oh, well, well, this is for adults." I was like, "Why does it matter? Just, just, just change the dosage based on his weight." And he's like, "Oh, well, because the NIH and the CDC have conflicting opinion on ivermectin, we can't give it to him." Which I, I knew he was full of crap. If they had conflicting opinions, and they could have easily just listened to you and comply with your wishes. See, like, there's a whole thing is like at that point they made it discretionary that they're not going to follow the protocol because you showed it to them, which said they could do it. And then they wanted to conflict it because they never wanted to give them ivermectin. But right. if they felt that, you know, there was discrepancy that they would be liable if they didn't follow their protocols, then they should have just listened to you because that just left it open. But they never had that plan. So that that's, you know, that's the commonality that we've been kind of seeing. I mean, I caught him in a lie. He kept changing his stories every time I bought up, you know, facts about ivermectin. You know, first it was, oh, it's not the CDC says you can't use it. And then it went from NIH that it wasn't recommended to, oh, I'm changing my story to, oh, it's for adults now, to changing my story to, oh, it's conflicting opinion. So, so the whole time I was denied ivermectin or Eris was denied ivermectin. And, you know, he's still on the full face mask. And during this time, you know, it's day one. He's he's hungry. He wanted something to eat. He was thirsty as well. So, you know, we asked the nurse, the doctors, hey, can we get him something to eat? They said, no, we can't give him any food or water just in case we have to intubate him. And this is day one. So they already had that mindset they want to intubate him. So they, they just refused to give him any food or water. And then, you know, there was an instance where where he said he was hungry. And I said, Eris, let's do treatment first and I'll get you something to eat. He's like, oh, okay. So we did treatment, clear him up. And I asked the doctor, I was like, oh, can we give him something to eat now? He's like, no, we can't because just in case of innovation. And Eris was like, oh man, I'm so hungry. I really wanted to eat. Anything. And that would have made him stronger. That's why he wanted to eat and drink. His cellular machine would have picked up and started healing itself. I mean, so they, they were, they were fine giving him him uh, Miralax, which makes yeah. no sense. No, it, it sounds water. like the end of life uh, care where they start stop giving them food and water and basically letting them starve to death and die. So yeah. it's unfortunate that you know, he had to die that way. It was day one. I mean, as soon as we walked in, unfortunately, you know, we took him in the hospital that morning and he didn't eat breakfast or anything. And as soon as we walked, as soon as we went to the ICU, he was asking for food and he was denied immediately. It's no option, you know? And then we asked for vitamins and they, they said they couldn't, they have to talk to the uh, infectious and disease experts. They have to get their approval first before they can even give them vitamins. So they wouldn't even give him vitamins and the disease, disease and infection experts didn't come in until his last day in the hospital. Which is crazy, right? Because he's admitted for infectious disease and mm -hmm. he doesn't come in until the very last day. Very last day is when we spoke to the, the so-called experts. So you know, all this was happening on day one. And then and then on day two, you know, he, he, he's, he's starting to get worse. 
but he was still hanging on. But, you know, Howard, you know, nothing really changed, you know, um, still too much oxygen. Um, you know, I was still doing his treatments consistently. And, um, and then, um, sorry. And then. So what was bringing his condition down ultimately where? It was the high pressure. Um, I mean, his Dr. Brooks told us that the dangers of too much oxygen and pressure years ago, too much pressure will push down all that secretion. It actually puts it further down in his lungs. This is why I was highly against putting that on him and obviously not having, he was there for, he, he was there for four days. He only survived for four days during those, those four days, they didn't give him any food and water. Which it is enough right there to deteriorate because what's happening is when a person is first sign of when a person like a patient is uh on recovery they usually get hungry so when they're not hungry that's when you know that something is still wrong with them so he was already wanting to eat and being deprived four days of food and water so what that's doing is on top of the stress of the face mask and the pressure and whatever medications that he's going on his fighting his body is on full fighting mode to just to handle the stress and that stress alone eats up a lot of energy from the body so i think that's what weakened him like if he had food he probably could have survived longer or even gotten better but without food you know he his body was already it was it's basically dying without that because they weren't giving him energy and plus, they were depleting all of that energy from him. We constantly asked for food and water. And the answer was always the same. Can't give it to him just in case we have to intubate him. And, did they uh, intubate him? They did. Um, so, so, during this, so, really it was the third day. He, he, uh, he started to talk to himself. I think he was talking to an angel or somebody, but he started talking and saying, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Let's go eat. It's okay. Let's go. It's okay. And I went up to Harris. I was like, Harris, what do you mean it's okay? He said, it's okay. It's okay. Let's go. It's okay. Uh, so like angel is telling them it's time to go, huh? Giving them a message. So yeah, did he know he was going to die right at that point then? He, he, and, and then I, I, I spoke to him. I was like, Eris, what do you mean it's okay? What's, what's, and I asked him, I was like, Eris, who am I? You know, who am I? And he was like, oh, you're, he didn't call me dad. He called me by my full name. He's like, oh, you're, you're David Dobson. Aww. And he killed me because I wanted to say dad. Then his mom came over and was like, who am I? He's like, oh, you're Misty Wynn. Actually, no. At first, he called me Skin. That's what he called me. I asked him what my name was. He said, you're Skin. You're Skin. I'm like, no, no, no. Who am I? And then that's when he called me by my full name. And he called Misty by her full name. And then so, and then after that, his eyes rolled in the back of his head. And uh, he, uh, you know, his, his, his doctor, Dr. Brooks came in. Uh, she came in a little bit before he his eyes rolled in the back of his head, but she came in and, you know, I asked her for ivermectin, same story, not FDA approved. 
we can't give it to him. And uh, and then, you know, during when Eris eyes rolled in the back of his head, Dr. Brooks, who used to be against intubation, unless it's absolutely necessary, came to us and was like, this, we need to intubate him. This is life or death. She's like, and we didn't want to intubate him, but she was like, oh, the the studies in oxygen changed over the years. Uh, so it's different now, is what she told us, because she told us about the dangers of oxygen, and now she's telling us that the science has changed around the oxygen. And she said that, you know, we can just intubate them and we can take it right out. So we just need to do it for now. So we agreed. And and she was also pushing remdesivir. She just, she, and I asked all three doctors, uh, there was three of them. They all pushed for remdesivir. I asked, show me the study that proves remdesivir works. And she's, they, all three of them said there is no data showing that it works. So then why are they pushing it? If they all knew that, I, I and I and I told him I was like I don't understand if there's no data proving remdesivir, why can't we just give him ivermectin, not FD, not against FDA protocol? That was that was their shield FDA protocol. So, well, the sad truth is FDA is now controlled with the infectious diseases. This is true for any of them, not just COVID. They all now follow the guide of FDA to do any treatment. Doctors have given up their license and practicing to the government. So unfortunately, that's what you've been experiencing, even, you know, having to go through this in real time with your son. Um, with Dr. Brooks, that you said that she's the one that helped you before. Now, she she's, now she's acting uh, opposite of that to... Everything she taught me about how to treat Eris, for Eris's respiratory care was the exact opposite that that day at the hospital. Every she contradicted herself from what she taught me in the past, and and she was pushing for remdesivir. And she even said that you know she did a Google search on ivermectin and found no proof of it working. And uh, she convinced me at one point to give it to him, and then I immediately said no. I can't do this. So they didn't give him rendezvous, thank goodness. But I was just so desperate because I didn't know what else to do. And she said she she used it on some of her other kids and she saw some success. And so, but I'm, I'm glad I didn't give it to him. And, uh, but so, uh, okay, so the high pressure mask that mm -hmm. was already bringing his condition down. Yes. Then they decided to intubate him to do, I think that was a call saying, you know what, we'll get that insurance money. If we, that's what she said, we can do it quickly and take it out. Yeah. So once they do it, they collect the money. So it wasn't necessary, even if, you know, even if it was just for a minute, they would, would have been to collect it. So how long was that in there for him? Uh, I think a day. He didn't last very long after that. Um, they intubated him. And they still were applying way too much oxygen in him because his neck was swelling up. Um, his neck was so swollen. And, uh, and uh, you know. Did him any drugs with, like, all the stuff that Rebecca took pictures of? Was he also on drugs at the, he must have been on intubation drugs, right? Yeah, I know he was on fentanyl. Um, that was in his medical record. Um, yeah, so. You know, during his intubation, you know, they intubated him and 
I saw his face and his eyes were very wide. Like he was in shock. And that was the last time I saw him open his eyes. He closed his eyes slowly. Slowly after that. And, um, you know, during his intubation, the doctors were trying different techniques, you know, rolling him on his stomach. But when they rolled him on his stomach, they broke his, his shoulder. Uh, and, uh, that had to be in a violent way to be able to break a shoulder like that. Yeah, yeah they, they, they broke his shoulder and, you know, they just came in and was like, oh, yeah, you know, his, he, he has a fractured shoulder, you know. And that was it. They didn't really do anything about it. They just said he has fractured shoulder. Wow. That's, and, uh, that's, it's so revealing with all these doctors and their conscience on how they do things. Just the treatment alone. Even if it wasn't FDA mandated for any of this stuff, just the lack of humanity and care. I mean, especially when you're breaking bones, you're, you know, the, I guess they, they must have already known that he's going to die. So why well, bother? Yeah, I mean, there was this one nurse who walked in and, you know, most of the nurses, they didn't really do anything. You know, me and mom were there the whole time. Well, mom was there the whole time. I left once to pick up ivermectin, but none of the nurses really did anything. Me and his mom, you know, we made sure he was clean. We wiped him down, took care of him. And, uh, you know, I was, I was... I was talking to Eris saying how unfair this is. This is not fair. It's not fair. And I heard the nurse mocking me saying, oh, it's not fair. It's not fair. And Why would she do that? That's crazy. I don't know. I mean, he wasn't vaccinated, No, nor were none of us. So I'm assuming maybe he, they just treated him poorly because he wasn't vaccinated. Um, and, no, uh, it's just, it's sick. I think the whole I don't know. I think the people that are left in these medical institutions are the only ones that are willing to go along with all this stuff. The good ones got taken out, you know. So it's it's sick. I can't believe. So among all of you know what's been happening, I know that Scott has an ongoing lawsuit to to do this. Um, what about you guys? Have you filed anything with all these institutions? I mean, I've, I've tried, you know, I've, I've wasted a thousand dollars on some, some supposedly charitable organization who reviews medical records. I got a discount even, and all I got back was a, a one paragraph sentence saying, yeah, you know, doctors didn't do what they did. And, you know, I've been trying to reach out to a lot of people, a lot of different organizations. You know, I reached out to this one organization who was, who seemed promising at first. And now they're shifting their view to the vaccines because I guess it's low-hanging fruit. And well, what I, about any medical medmel law firms in your area? There's nobody's willing to accept anything. That's the problem. You know, that's that's the biggest problem because this is actually if it wasn't like something devious with the government, there would have been law firms all over this to file lawsuits everywhere. But I think most of the big and the medium firms won't touch it because they know there's a bigger picture here that's going on to be able to I do mean, this. Honestly, I'm here to just spread awareness. I don't expect any sort of accountability. I really don't. I mean, you know, I thought when Harris died, it was a big deal. He's only 13. You know, it's a big deal, right? No one seems to care. 
You know, you you try to spread the word through social media, it's, it barely gets covered. It's it's overshadowed by the vaccine, and, and no one seems to care that people are dying in the hospital. You know, it's your choice to get vaccinated or not at the end of the day. And it's not your choice if, if you're sick and you have no choice but to go to the hospital. You have to go, and you would think that this would be a crisis, like a state of emergency. The doctors are killing people. Seems like no one cares. Seems like the only people who care is who's, who's been through it. I know. Well, I care. I mean, I've been following this for a long time, and I think there are people that care, but the, what the problem is that we're not really able to communicate well together, and we're not able to take action. That's the two biggest downfalls of letting this go on, you know, like visually and, you know, among other stories as well, I could see what's happening. Scott can see it. He's been uh, very active and podcasting and telling his story and, you know, inviting all these other guests. And through him is where I met you guys. So it's not that the word isn't out. I think by now there's enough information out there for people to research for themselves and get the information if they're really looking hard enough. But I think the blinders is the problem that it's not coming off until they actually in that situation, they're going through it and then they survive it afterwards and they go, Oh, you know, why did I trust this doctor this way? Why did I not follow this? And the other problem is they're calling what could just be influenza flu into deadly COVID. So that puts everybody at a higher alert, you know, thinking there's some deadly virus out there that if we don't get these treatments, they're not going to live through it. There's no way, there's no hope. There's that, you know, the one to 2% that are going to die if they don't get that specific care. And that's that fear that the government and the media has already been instilling in us for three years now. But more and more people, I don't know if they relax on the ventilators thing, because I think, uh, you know, there was an initial push to make sure they, especially in New York City, they wanted a ton of ventilators. I don't know if that subsided since then, or if this is like the active treatment that's still being offered to everybody that goes in. But the remdesivir that's still out there, even though there's enough information on people, but the problem is lay people or everyday people cannot go and fight with the doctors because one, they have a legal responsibility uh, to whatever they're told. So either they listen to their conscience and say, I'm not going to follow that. But once they've already decided they're already in the system, it's too late for them. They're not going to go against your wishes or anybody else's. Wish. They're going to go to follow the government because it gives them protection under the law to do what they were told to do. So the only real thing is, you know, like individually, you can file your lawsuits in your own home state. There's always going to be that one attorney, um, med mal attorney, that's going to be able to say, look, they did this wrong and just go under filing it for a wrongful death and standard of care that they deviated from the standard of care. You're not going to be able to fight the big fight just yet, which means, you know, the protocols were wrong. The vaccine stuff is wrong. All of these FDA stuff, all their involvement, that's too much of a big fight, can only happen as a big class action against the government to be able to put a stop to it. But individually, you can still file your cases. And hopefully, I know that, you know, you don't care about the money at this point. That's not what the lawsuit does. The lawsuit makes them hurt 
what they took the money to kill your children, you want to be able to get that back so they don't profit from continuing to kill. And it puts it on their record that they were the, the killing doctors. So, um, so um, if anything, if you're going to do anything, you know, you should try to be proactive as much as you can. You're not actually fighting the legal case. Your attorney is going to do that. You just have to find somebody to do it. And that'll help, you know, to at least reduce some of this. And the more vocalization that you guys are doing, hopefully people are going to wake up. But you're right. I mean, there is a large part of apathy. When I go outside of this world, I mean, I look around and no one cares that cares. I mean, that I'm, to me is super saddening. Yeah, and I mean, I'm so defeated, honestly. I'm become really hardened. Um, I mean, I haven't well, left my house in a year. I just, I just don't see a way out. You know, I'll do my part and spread the word. We have to reach out to God. I don't I mean, I don't know what your faith is, but that's what's helped me. I know Scott's a Christian and that's helped him too. You know, uh, you got to trust God. There's a, He's protecting and, you know, I don't know what his reasons are for allowing all this to happen because your children were very innocent and they were all special needs. So they had no fight in this game whatsoever. They were just healthy, happy kids. So I, I can, you know, only hope that God has, is they're now with God, you know, and they serve their I'm purpose. Sure you but you will see them again and they'll all be restored. And be happy and loving children that you once knew. So, do you guys have anything that you want to share about uh, your situation and the similarities, and uh, what do you think should happen? I I would like to see lawyers take the case. I I lived in New York, and New York is full of attorneys. And I called from the moment it happened. I start calling. I got Daniel autopsy report. There's no attorney wants to take the case. I actually reached out to Rainer Fulmich. He had given me Melissa Jacobs. They now are going after Gilead for, for the drug. Um, I haven't found an attorney who would even bring Northwell Health up because it's such a powerful hospital. They're buying up all the smaller hospitals. They're becoming very powerful. Nobody wants yeah. to take it. Not in New York. Well, it's difficult. I mean, because even um, last year when I was looking into remdesivir and one of the uh, firms that I reached out to said, look, you know, you can handle these cases of remdesivir. They never even wanted to come back. So I think their legal community seems to be not ready because there are some repercussions from trying to go after these big biotech because they're backed by the government. That's the ultimate problem. So, like, let's say any product, you know, if you get injured by some any product, you can sue that company for product liability. And, you know, from that, you know, much of the stuff that's happened in the last 40, 50 years because of product liability cases to, you know, help the millions of people for to get rid of all the bad products and put the better ones out there. But with the drug companies, they've already said there's no immunity. But the problem is when they're doing something on purpose and it's intent to kill, knowing that they're pushing out all these protocols and drugs, they no longer have immunity. It's just that we don't have 
state attorney generals to take action. We don't have prosecutors to go after them because there's plenty of criminal liability that they can go after. All of these companies, all the biotech companies, including the government, but the, the problem is who's going to be, and they have to be big enough to be able to, you know, this is going to take a decade probably to go through. So there has to be a powerful firm enough to say, okay, we're going to take on the government and the biotech. It may not happen. I'm hopeful that it will, you know, but individually, you, you know, do what you can. You can get access to all the medical records, do that right away. So they don't start deleting and monkeying around with that. Cause I know you don't want to look at the data because it hurts you, but go look at everything. Go start looking at whatever information you can gather, all the documents and the, how much they profited. I don't know where you're going to get access to all of that, but. I have everything. The moment she died and I left the hospital, I went straight, my husband went straight into the records department in Oxford. So we have all her records. Then we went after the financial and I'm waiting on the nurses. I also have the autopsy report, which showed that her lungs was gone two weeks before. So they literally killed her and still did the tracheotomy because her lungs was rubber. So the autopsy show her lungs was gone. It was gone. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, looking at individually at your own stuff, I'm sure you're going to find plenty of information to say where they messed up. And, you know, you can just do a basic lawsuit. You can, if, even if you, no one else is going to file your case for you, you can do it yourself, you know, but there is a statute of limitations. So, don't wait too long. You know, I don't know what it is in your states. But, you know, no matter what, let's say you're getting closer to that statute of limitation and you haven't found anybody. File the suit yourself. You can do that. Yeah, I want to see these doctors be held accountable, these doctors and nurses. I mean, yeah. they lied to us. I mean, they're, they're still enjoying their family. They're enjoying their children. And, I mean, I even, I even got a second opinion when I was in the hospital from a doctor in Texas who said, don't give him rendesivir. He wrote me the prescription for ivermectin. He gave me his protocol. I showed it to the doctors. I'm like, yeah, we'll take a look at it. They never looked at it. By the time- They, they weren't gonna do it. They wanted him to die, so. Yeah, they wanted him to die. I wish so, it was a, sample, a sample that's out there that we could follow, you know, a sample lawsuit that we could do. That we could just fill um, in. There is. I mean, every court yeah. has their own pro se forms. So, I mean, basically, you need for a complaint, which you can get online. There's a sample in like New York courts, wherever you are. You can go to that court, and there's going to be sample forms and a complaint and a summons. Once you draft the complaint, you can do it simply at least to get the claims out there for wrongful death and medical malpractice and, you know, whatever. And, or if, if no one's going to represent you, you can even seek legal advice just for certain legal terms, claims that you can bring. You can hire any local attorney. There'll be plenty will take your money to do that. So once you know what your legal claims and your statute of limitations in your state, you can take a sample complaint uh, and then you know, draft, draft out your claims simply. And they there's even instructions most of the time in your courts on how to do that. 
And then you have to have a summons, which means whenever you're ready to serve the lawsuit on the parties, you have to serve that party. I would get a service processor because they will give you the certificate of service that says they were properly served. That will initiate the lawsuit and you're serving them with a summons and a complaint. Once the lawsuit is properly initiated, then they have time to respond, uh, usually within 20 some days in your whatever it is in your state. And if they they will respond because it's going to be a hospital and, and doctors. The biggest problem is trying to do this yourself is that they're going to have their own medical experts to say they did nothing wrong. They followed all the protocols. And the very initial thing is you might not even survive the motion to dismiss your case because they're going to have all these legal expertise and you're not going to know anything about that. But if you have no other choice, no representation, and this case is going to expire, you might as well go for it. So, you know, take your chances and see what happens. But I think if you really try to find a local MedMel attorney, you will find someone, you know, to, to hear. It's They're not all corrupt. It's only the medium and the larger firms that won't touch it. But there are plenty of solo lawyers, smaller firms that will you know, take your case. And I'm sure there's Christian organizations that maybe, I don't know if Scott knows about or not, that uh, where you can submit. Well, I, you know, interestingly, I did the similar thing to what Rebecca did, uh, and I really got discouraged. I reached out to all kinds of Christian organizations. I didn't get a response from one. Wow. Uh, not even the churches. Yeah. Isn't that so, sad? Though? Yeah, I mean, I really got I really got discouraged. I talked with uh so I had a couple of attorney friends who who uh were well connected. One of them uh I was able to through him get a phone call with the best medical malpractice attorney in Wisconsin. <clears throat> and he said to he really discouraged me, but in it's it's because the laws, so even before COVID the statutes are written in favor of the doctors. So like in Wisconsin, because Grace was a legal adult, there's no financial claim there because the loss of companionship is the major claim. So there's no loss of companionship. So then, you know, the attorneys then aren't interested because, you know, they're banking on getting uh, a percentage of the, the winnings. Well, the the medical malpractice attorney told me specifically that even in slam dunk cases like Grace's appears to be, I had sent him just a, a short brief and he said, we only have a one in 10 chance. And I get that. I mean, I really understand it now because uh, what he told me I, I've seen now. And I, I, you know, when I look at Grace's case, um, you know, it seems strange that I would tell you, that the odds of us winning are near zero percent. You know, we have an overabundance of evidence, but what this medical malpractice attorney told me, he said, we we bring in 10 witnesses. So he told me about a case where the doctor sewed up a sponge inside the patient and they lost. And he said, we brought 10 witnesses in, but they brought a hundred because they circle the wagons. You know, and they're they're big, you know, these hospital systems, you know, if it's a small private hospital, that's one thing. But like we're up against Ascension Hospital System. It's huge. And they yeah. have 30 billion in cash. 
And they pay their lawyers well. They get the biggest law firms. They get yep. the big, all the doctors I mean, this are is, available to them. Yeah, so the purpose of the lawsuit becomes to expose evil. It isn't about winning. It's about exposing evil. Um, so anyway, I got fairly discouraged. I did in the process of, you know, I've met a lot of different people and Todd Callender was one of the attorneys who I've met, not physically, but I mean, him and I have talked and he, he, I don't know what his organization is, um, but they, they have the pro se, um, things set up on their website that you can you can use to file your own case but like you said Seema so you file your own case well you know do you survive the motion to dismiss it'll uh, be hard right well, I mean 98 percent chance you might not because you don't have any medical background and right. so at, at the point when I realized I thought well we're never going to file a case so that's why we went all in on trying to get the word out we set up the website and you know, I started so you, to have you filed a case or you have not filed a case? It's not filed yet. So we hired a we hired a law firm. They're working on it. They're uh, I would say they're roughly halfway through the records now. I'm expecting that they'll file by the end of next month. But it will be filed eventually. So what what is your advice to them or anyone that's looking to file? What they what should they do? Where should they go? I, I wish I, 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 you know, what the advice you gave them would be the same thing that I would say. I mean, I, you know, unless God is instrumental in in uh, locating an attorney, I don't, I think it's a needle in the haystack. So, you know, like I said, we, we ended up, it, it was, I, all I can say is God was involved with, with our situation because there's, we were just doing, you know, I'm just out there. That's all. I mean, that's uh, what we decided to do is just go all in on doing, getting the word out. Um, so, I mean, that's what I was working on full time. And I ended up meeting uh, Tom Renz in the process. And then, um, you know, there's just a, there's just a number of people because you're, you're willing to be out there that you end up coming across. So, I mean, that's what I would encourage both of you to do is, you know, do, um, you know, people will hear the story. Yeah. You know, we're we're all three in the hospital killing lane. That's the story that's not getting any attention. You know, David called it. I mean, nobody wants to be in the hospital killing lane. And it's because it's too egregious. Everybody's in the vaccine lane. Yeah. Uh, but the hospital killing lane, if you're willing to um, get out there, you know, you can hire, you know, at the beginning, you know, I just did the stuff myself, but I realized, okay, well, you know, I can leverage time by hiring a PR company to, you know, because they have contacts that I didn't have, you know, so then uh, that's what I did at the early on after I had several interviews, I thought, well, I'm going to try and see what does a PR firm even do, you know, so then they're connected with, with people doing podcasts, and you can get out and do it and do that. Uh, you know, but it takes, you know, it's work. I mean, this has become a full time job for me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's one thing is one awareness, which is what all these podcasts are for. But then there's other portion of it individually that, you know, are you going to hold these people accountable? So they're not going to continue to keep killing the next person. Because I'm sure if we were able to get their records, we would have to figure out how many people died under their care, just from the COVID protocols. I'm, I'm sure it's astounding, because they're not just going to do it to your son and your daughter, right? They're going to be doing it to the one after because they're trying to clear the beds fast as they Absolutely. can to get I mean, the next one. So how many of those were dead? 
a lot. So that's the exposure that still needs to happen. And by filing suits, even individually or collectively, it will bring some of this stuff out. And I can say at least with the remdesivir, you know, one of the experts I've spoken to Dr. Artis on, because he seems to talk a lot about, knows a lot about remdesivir. He's willing to be an expert. If you had to reach out to anybody to become an expert, at least he would be one. And then he maybe can give you uh, contacts for other doctors that are willing to testify on your behalf. So I would use whatever resources that you're coming across. Um, and in time, you know, you'll be I, able to get somewhere. I have reached out to Dr. Addis. I have reached out to Ryan's Law when all of this happened back in December, yeah. October. I have reached out to everybody all over the world. And one attorney explained to me, how the lawsuit will be filed is a value of life. What value did she have? Was she going to be able to make a hundred thousand dollars a year? What yeah, value let's talk about that because I noticed that, you know, since all of your children had special needs and I'm sure the doctors and the hospitals picked up on an easy target, right? So they weren't going to become anyone that would be able to fight back against them. Yep. Um, so, is there anything in your research that says they're actually targeting special needs children and adults? I've, I've researched that back when I was studying the Holocaust in June and I found out, yeah, I haven't, I haven't drilled down it since I haven't drilled down that research since then. But at that point, the disabled women were 11 times more likely to be murdered in the hospital than non-disabled women. And you know, so that shocked me. Yeah. Uh, but it was what I was expecting. You know, and statistically, the number one and number two causes of death with COVID in a hospital are elderly number one, disabled number two. Well, those, of course, are not comorbidities. Right. And those probably, the, I don't think I've ever even seen any cases where it's the disabled on behalf of a disabled person. You know, like, I don't, I don't think there's that many cases. It's so, interestingly, we learned, you know, so you would think that, so like Rebecca was, you know, she, she was right on. I mean, um, Danielle should have had uh, somebody with her the whole time. So by them denying Rebecca to come back in as an ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act violation. Well, as I have, you know, this will really make you sick. So as I learned, um, what the Americans with Disabilities Act covers, it is it it provides injunctive relief only. So once the patient is dead, there's no claim. Wow. So you would have to have known this and have an attorney, you know, in real time to say, listen, you're violating my rights. I mean, Rebecca, you had the right to be in there. But I mean it's injunctive relief. I mean it's the laws are so against i mean you think well this you know when congress passes a law do they even think it through as to how this is going to shake out you know how many people know you have injunctive relief and then you'd have to have an attorney on retainer when an event happens to you yeah, yeah it's, it's, most, so it's not it's not practical these laws are it's, yeah. it's a complete waste oh yeah i mean it's all against people and it's always in favor of corporations so that's the big problem they're protecting themselves really um did any of you file a complaint with your local attorney general's office 
No. I did not. It's so corrupt, New York. I couldn't I couldn't even do it. It probably would kill me. New York is very um, corrupt. I mean, I don't know what to say about that. But all I can really say is just, we just have to pray to God collectively. You know, he, he said if more than two are gathered together, then he's with us. So, you know, that's maybe me. I don't know, if Scott, if you want to do a prayer for us. Yeah, I'd be glad to. I do want to add, um, so the Attorney General, you know, it is dependent on the state. I know Truth for Health Foundation has some um, pro se forms for filing criminal complaints. I mean, these are criminal activities. Yeah. So I would certainly uh, at least look into that. Uh, we we also filed complaints against the doctor and the hospital with the state agencies that regulate both. You know, that ended up being a waste of time, but it and what it did was it woke me up. I mean, all four of us are awake to what's going on, but after Grace died, I didn't realize that she was murdered and and I didn't realize how how um nefarious this whole thing is. And so when both state agencies sent me letters back after I sent them all my research at the time and said the hospital and the doctor did nothing wrong. That's when I, the first day I woke up, when I thought, they're all in on this. And oh, then yeah. I, really, I really started going into it. But even knowing all of this, that they're all guilty of murdering and doing all the protocols and stuff, file your complaints with the AG's office, your local prosecutor for criminal complaints, you know, like, because what they're doing is deliberately trying to uh, use medicine as a way to kill. So... You know, just file your, even if nothing happens, that complaint is filed. And also you can uh, file a complaint with the medical board against those specific doctors right. in the hospital. So you have at least three or four different areas that you're going to push it out there. And believe me, right now it's just a small ripple. But for, you know, the three of you here, perhaps 10 of you watching and others, if they're all doing similar, you know, be able to file against their own uh, in their own state, it's going to make a big impact because then there's enough people that uh, a bigger corporation, bigger firm, they're all going to pick up on it. And it only takes, you know, one person to defeat the Goliath if God is willing. So it all just, you know, like right now we're just sharing your experiences, but it's all really up to you as to how far it goes. And nobody wants to be in this world for the rest of your lives. That's a misery hell already. So I don't want you to think that, you know, because you lost your children, that now you got to suffer for the next 10 years or more because of what happened to them. You know, you have your own lives to live. You gave them the love that you gave them and they know about it. God knows about it. And you have to live your own life too, you know? So as time goes by, I hope that, you know, you have happiness back in your lives. Well. Seema, thank you. I, I'll pray for all of us right now. Thank you. Thank you all for doing the podcast. You're welcome. Uh, Lord, we know that you're you're with us. We are all grieving. Uh, you know where our hearts are at. Each of us are at a different point. Uh, we know that you that you are sovereign. So for some reason you allowed the the deaths of each of our our kids. We don't understand exactly why, but we know uh, you're sovereign, and we we will stand on that fact. And 
and help us to each in our own way be obedient to your will and use our one talent or ten talents or whatever you have given us to glorify you and share this message with anybody who you put in our path so that we can help wake people up to both the hospital situations and to you. I pray all these things in your in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much. And uh, best of luck to all of you guys. And I'm sure I'll be hearing from you at some point. Please give me an update as to what's been going on. And I hope you find the right people in your path to be able to pursue stuff on your behalf. Thank you so much and have a great night. See you. All right, you too. Thanks. Bye. All right, bye. Thank you.